Okay, good evening everyone. We are uh, in Mark. We've been doing a series in the book of Mark. And uh, tonight we're in Mark 15. If you want to look along in your Bible, starting at verse 21. The soldiers forced a passerby to carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to a place called Gogotha, which is translated place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, throwing dice for them to decide what each would take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Let's pray. God, uh, we love you, and uh, we open your word tonight expectantly, asking for you to speak to us. We don't always see things clearly. Uh, at best, we see through a glass dimly. And so tonight, we ask that you would just illuminate your word, illuminate your truth, illuminate the person of your son, Jesus Christ, to us, confront us with his life and his death and give us the space to respond. It's in your name we pray, amen. So there was a doctor, uh, C. Truman Davis, who some years ago wrote a medical description of what Jesus would have gone through on the cross. And um, I'm just going to read you a little bit of it. It's I have to say, reading it, it's hard to read. Um, and, and so I, I just, I just want to read a little bit of it, because, not, to, not to glory in, the, in the, um, the detail of the suffering that Jesus had, not to, not to dwell in the goriness of it, but because as uh, readers in our in our time, we we read a, the words they crucified him, and we have no context for that. Uh, the people that Mark was writing to, the first century readers, would have immediately known exactly what that meant. They would have there would have been smells that came back to them, sounds that came back to them, sights that came back to them from times that they'd seen other people crucified. It was a common practice, too common. And so the gospel writers only had to write, and they crucified him, and everybody knew what that meant. But for us, we really don't quite know what it means, and so I'm just going to read a little bit. It says, uh, he writes, Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild analgesic mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the patabulum on the ground, and that's the crossbar that they um, crucified him on. And Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. I'll just stop there. 
Uh, I'll just add that the reason that he wanted to allow for some flexion and movement is as the crucified person would begin to sag down and their, their lungs would fill up so they couldn't breathe. And so they would pull themselves up in order to get a gasp of air before they began to sag back down again, every nerve in their body on fire with pain. And this could take three days. Three days to die. Arguably, crucifixion is the most um, excruciating form of torture and and death ever devised. And um, the goal was not just to, to kill the person who was being crucified, but to completely and utterly shame and invalidate them and everything that they stood for in the eyes of the public. In Jesus' case, he had challenged the status quo. He, he had challenged the authority of the religious rulers. He had really turned their whole view of how the world worked on its head. And the crucifixion was meant to, to say to everybody who could see that this is what you get when you try to defy their authority. This is what you get when you go against the grain. And, and so they, they shamed him. They mocked him. They jeered at him. You know, they put the purple robe on him after they had him flogged. And, and so it would have dried on his back. And when they ripped it off, it would have ripped some of the skin off as well. They gave him a, a scepter, mocking him like a king would have. And then they took it back from him to beat him with it. Of course, they put the crown of thorns on his head. He would have been naked. They, they had judged and rejected him in every possible way that a person could be rejected. In every possible way that he could be humiliated, he was humiliated. They even mockingly put this sign, the king of the Jews, above his head. And Pilate had it written in Aramaic and Greek and Latin because he wanted everybody to be able to read and see what it said. The Jewish leader said, no, don't, don't put that up there. Say instead, he, this man says that he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. And the ironic thing is that as the Messiah, as the true king of the Jews, that sign was perfect because the Messiah had to come and had to be crucified and had to die, had to defeat death and sin, and so that sign couldn't have been more perfect. They meant it to mock him, but was actually perfectly describing who he was. You know, uh, I have to say, I just have to add here, the very fact that we're sitting here some 2,000 years later is one of the most convincing proofs of the deity of Christ to me personally. I didn't become a Christian until I was about 30 years old. And uh, one of the things that I started thinking about, one of the things that began to convince me that Jesus was who he said he was, is the existence of the church. You know, there's no other movement throughout time where the leader was killed in this type of way so publicly when there was no money involved. 
No fame involved, no status involved, no assets involved. There, there was no good reason for anyone to witness Jesus die that way and then continue to follow him and not just continue to follow him, but follow him in the face of intense persecution for 300 years after Jesus was killed this way. Romans were crucifying Christians and lighting them on fire. They, were, they had to hide what they believed. There was no reason to follow him unless they had seen something miraculous, unless they had been convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, unless they had seen the healings, unless they had seen the resurrection, unless they had seen the miracles. There would have been no reason to continue to follow him. And, and yet they did, and uh, of course eventually Christianity became the, the official religion of Rome, and you know, 2,000 years later we sit here. We sit here because they, they endured that persecution for 300 years, when there was no reason to. It's amazing when you think about it. The passage goes on. In verse 27, and they crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by defamed him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, even the chief priests, together with the experts in the law, were mocking him among themselves. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also spoke abusively to him. I have a lot of friends who are not Christians, and uh, they would say to me, you know, if God is real, why doesn't he just come, and why doesn't he just show himself, why doesn't he just do something miraculous so that I can see and believe, just like the leaders um, who are watching Jesus crucify, be crucified. And, you know, I've thought about that. Well, why doesn't God do that? Uh, but have you ever seen a magic act? Or, like, gone to see a magician or seen one on TV? Well, what's the first thing that you think? You know, I've seen it where they, like, disappear a plane, you know, or an elephant or something. Or, like, they're there on the stage, and then suddenly they're in the back of the auditorium. And I never think... Oh, this guy is a wizard. <laughs> I, I never think, oh, this guy obviously has magical abilities. You know, magic is real. I never think that. Because I already believe that it's not. I go into it looking for the wires. I go into it looking for the misdirection. I go into it looking for the technology. I've already, I'm already convinced it's not real. And there's nothing that they could do, no amazing trick that they could pull off, no car or, whoa, hello, guitar. Um, <laughs> guitar, no, no, no musical instrument. That, there's nothing they could do that would convince me that magic was real. And I, I suspect that that's the case with Jesus. That when people are predisposed to thinking that something isn't true, they're going to find ways to invalidate it. They're going to find ways to convince themselves that what they're seeing isn't really what they're seeing. And so, just like it didn't matter for people in Jesus' day who were convinced that he wasn't who he said he was, there was nothing he was going to do that was going to convince them. 
And there's nothing that he would do now that would convince people. So I just think that's a, that's a false argument. So, uh, if Jesus really was who he said he was, then you've got to ask yourself, well, why would he subject himself to this torture? Well, why would he allow himself to be arrested, tried, crucified, betrayed, rejected, abandoned? Why would he submit himself to that? Well, you, right away you've got to rule out that he couldn't have avoided it, that he wasn't strong enough to avoid it. When uh, John writes that when Jesus is arrested in the garden, uh, he says, well, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus. He says, I am he, and boom, a whole Roman cohort falls to the ground, just at his word. When when, uh, one of his friends jumps up with a sword and tries to defend Jesus, Jesus says, no, put that away. Don't you know I could have my father send 12 legions of angels to my defense if I wanted to? He, he knows he's got to be arrested. He knows that he has to suffer. Even when he's being questioned by Pilate and he refuses to answer Pilate's questions and Pilate says, why are you not answering me? Don't you know that I have the power to either set you free or have you killed? And Jesus looks at him right in the eye surrounded by symbols of Roman authority. And he says, you don't have any power over me except what my father has given you. Jesus is is not helpless. He's not weak. He's not defenseless. He could change it at any point he doesn't. The second thing you have to rule out is that, you know, this somehow caught him by surprise. It didn't. Uh, In Matthew 16... It says, uh, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Peter's thinking, you know, the Messiah is going to come and set us free from Roman rule. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to be this mighty king and conqueror, a military uh, guy, a guy who by force is going to rebuild Israel. But that's, of course, not what Jesus came to do. And though he has the power to do that, he has to set that power aside and allow himself to go through what he has to go through on the cross. So why does Jesus do it? Well, Scripture gives us a lot of reasons why he does it. He does it to defeat sin, to pay for our sins. He does it to defeat death. He does it to reconcile us to God, to provide a path to reconciliation through the cross. He does it to fulfill justice. God can't just look the other way. If he does, then there's no justice. That's not justice. Justice is there's been a a crime committed and someone's got to pay. And we know this instinctively. That when something is wrong, it needs to be set right. There has to be payment. He does it because he loves us. He does it because 
we're incredibly valuable to him. He does it because we're worth dying for so that he can have a relationship with us. He does it to fulfill his purpose. There's something about the doing that perfects Jesus, the, the writer of Hebrews says, that, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, that to be perfected in his role as high priest, he endured the cross. He does it to set us free. He does it because it's what he was meant to do. It's his father's will. He's the Messiah, and this is what the Messiah does. There's a, a famous uh, TED Talk by a guy named Simon Sinek who talks about the importance of why. You know, that it, he makes the argument that our brains are wired to first, when we, when we hear information, to first uh, understand why is this important before we care about what it is that is the important thing or, or how to do it. It's the why question that's most important. It's the why question that drives us to be interested, to, to continue to tune in. It's the why question that will give us a sense of vision and purpose to chase so that even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, we're still inspired, we're still motivated. Well, Jesus knew his why. He knew why he was doing what he was doing. He knew it was important. He knew it was vital. He knew it was what he had to do to fulfill his purpose. If you look at any great leader, really, they always know their why, don't they? Uh, you think of people, I think of people like Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa. You know, it was hard. It was painful. It was, it was uh, you know, life and death. But they knew why they were doing what they were doing, and so they persisted, they persevered. They kept going no matter what was thrown at them. And it's not just really famous people. It's just everyday people. I think of mothers. You know, waking up in the middle of the night, time after time after time, day after day, week after week, going without sleep. Not saying fathers can't do it, but guys, come on. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's the moms. And... Uh, they know their why. It's that baby. That's what motivates them. Their love. That's what motivates them to sacrifice. We need to know our why. Jesus' why allowed him to endure the temptation in the desert. It wasn't just the cross. It was everything leading up to the cross. His why is what motivated him to leave a perfect love relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, everything perfect. And to be reduced to this little helpless baby in a manger. He knew his why. He didn't succumb to the temptations offered by Satan, offered by Peter to get him out of this. God, we love you. Don't do this. Let's do it another way. Let's go the power road. No, because he knew his why. He, he knew his why, and so... Uh, when he was in Gethsemane and he's sweating blood because he's so afraid of what's coming and he says to the Father, you know, if there's any way, then take this cup from my lips, but not my will, but your will be done. So he drank from the cup of suffering, not because he enjoyed suffering, but because he had to, to get to his why. 
to get to his purpose, to get to his mission, to endure when it was horrible. The passage goes on. Now when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Around three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take it, take him down. He doesn't take it. The drink would have numbed some of the pain, but you have to, I mean, you have to just be in awe of Jesus' ability to continue to care for the needs of other people, even as he hung from the cross. To say to John and to say to his mother, this is your son, this is your mother. Uh, to, to minister to the thief on his right, saying, this day you'll be in paradise with me. In the midst of his moment of most excruciating pain, still, He's fulfilling his purpose. He's, he's, do, he's doing what he is. He is doing his purpose. He is doing his mission. He, it's the most important thing. Nothing stopped him. Uh, verse 37, but Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood in front of him saw how he died, he said, truly this man was God's son. And you know, we all have to do that. We all have to stand at the foot of the cross and see what Jesus did and decide who we think he is. We have to look at what he said and look at what he did. And then, and it doesn't matter what we've done or where we've been or how maybe even we've persecuted Christians or, or uh, criticized the people who believe in, in God or criticized the idea of God or maybe lived our life in a certain way. I mean, this guy was part of the team that killed Jesus and still confronted with who he was and how he lived and how he died. He had to make a choice. Who do I say that Jesus is? We've all got to make that choice because at the end of life, it's the only choice really that matters. You know, uh, I know a lot of good people and uh, people who would say, you know, you would look at their life and say, well, you're a good guy. You're a good, good woman. You know, they, they dedicate themselves to a cause. They're really uh, on fire for it. It's a good thing. They help people. They love people. But if you really believe that there's no God, if you really believe that ultimately you just, you live, you die, and that's it, then whatever meaning you create within this life is got to be enveloped within an overarching meaninglessness. It dies when you die. And, and even if you think, well, I'm passing it on to the next generation, well, eventually this earth is not going to last forever. Eventually it's going to be gone. And then what? Whatever meaning that you had created is gone. It's ultimately meaningless. If you want to do more study on that, go to the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Before I became a Christian, I was a nihilist, an atheist. The book of Ecclesiastes is the first book of the Bible that really spoke to me and spoke to the meaninglessness of life without God. Verse 40, there are also some women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they had followed him and given him support. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were there too. You know, I just don't understand how people uh, give scripture an honest read and walk away thinking that women are any less valuable than men. Uh, I, I just don't get it. It's not, that's not supported by scripture. The women are there. Mark is giving credit to the fact that like, they supported Jesus' ministry. In the, in the early church, in the book of Acts, we see how integral they are to the development of the early church. How it couldn't have kept going if it wasn't for the women. They were bold. They had faith. Uh, you know, Genesis 127, he created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So if anybody tells you that the Bible supports the idea that women are somehow less than men, they haven't given scripture a, a good look. Now, here's the bottom line. Jesus died to set you free. He was willing to do whatever it took to set you free. And what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that freedom? And it's not a payback. He loves you because he loves you. Made in his image, worth enough to die for, no matter what your response is to him. It's not a payback. But knowing how much he loves you, knowing what he's given you, what does that inspire you to do? Knowing that he's given you gifts, knowing that he's given you freedom, what do you want to do with that? Not out of a payback, but because it's your why. It's what makes you come alive. It's what excites you. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's what your life would be empty without it. It's the most exciting thing. What are you going to do with it? What's your purpose? What vision do you have? What do you want to see happen? What talents have you been given that you, you could use for God's glory? What, what's your, I've heard Carl talk about, what's your complaint? What do you want to see done better or different? Or is there some team that you can join that's already doing it? And you can lend your strength to the cause. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I've got a slide with my email on there. You know, we did this leaders weekend a while back. And uh, we asked people, you know, we, we talked about the vision for the care center and said, what would you like to do in the care center? How could you help make the care center a really cool thing that serves our church and our city? And you guys wrote all kinds of responses. You have all kinds of ideas. And many of you are already doing amazing things. I'm looking out and seeing people I recognize. I know this is not to say, like, hey, you guys aren't doing anything. Let's get on the stick. I know you're already doing so much. 
But there's some of you who are just waiting, uh, waiting for the right time, uh, or just the right opportunity, or to be given permission. Well, let this be a formal invitation. We want you. We need you. You know, we got, I got all those responses from people, uh, but I don't have any contact information. So put, your, put it in an email. Tell me what you want to do. Let's have a conversation about it. Uh, let's talk about what it might look like. It could be the coolest thing that you ever do with your life. Don't let it pass you by. Don't let the opportunity pass. So, we've got some tables in the back. I said, you know, if you want to start something that doesn't already exist, great. Let's talk about that. Or you could join a team that already exists. We've got our CAP team back there. Uh, they do amazing work. You saw the video from... I'm, I'm always hearing stories from CAP about dramatic life change. Uh, we've got Junction 42. They partner with the prisons and help people transition from life inside to life outside. Um, we've got our prayer ministry. We've got our prayer ministry that prays with people after the service, but also deeper prayer. Uh, Susan is back there as a part of the prayer ministry, and she could talk to you about what that would look like. We've got our hampers table up there. Who am I missing? Did I miss anybody? I don't think so. Um, some of you may be thinking, you know, I do have some dreams. I, I have a vision. I have a purpose. I think I know my why, but actually I've got some things I need to sort through on my own. Uh, I've got some, some stuff I've got to unpack before I'm ready to start pouring it out to other people. Well, uh, we've got a Celebrate Recovery step study, one for men, one for women, that we're trying to get started. We need people to sign up for it. It's a 12-step Christ-centered group for all life's hurts, habits, and hang-ups. You might want to work through things in that. We've got our counseling ministry. We've got life care, but to be honest, we don't have enough life carers. We need more life carers. We've trained loads of people. Uh, but, but we need more. So we've got another life care training come up. You could go through that. It's going to be in uh, April and May. So there's all kinds of ways that you can plug in. Ways to be ministered to, ways to minister to other people. Maybe you need both. But whatever you do, don't let the opportunity to discover your why and begin to live it out pass you. It could be the most exciting, meaningful thing that you do with your life, the thing that lasts into eternity. Don't miss it. So I'm going to invite the prayer team up. Or I'm sorry, the, <laughs> not the prayer team. but well, they can come up too. Um, I'm going to invite the band up. And as we go into worship, I want you to be thinking about What's your why? What, what is God? I mean, right now, some of you may be getting uh, a nudge from God. Maybe there's something stirring in you, some idea that you've had, something you've been thinking about. Uh, listen to that. Maybe this is a, a season to pull back. This isn't to guilt you into doing more if you're already doing something. Or maybe this is a season to step forward, to get off the sidelines and start living out your purpose.
So let me pray for us. God, we love you. Thank you that you set us free. Thank you that you love us just because you love us and that you thought we were worth dying for regardless of how we responded to you. Thank you for what you've given us. Help us learn how to invest it. Help us hear your voice as you direct us. Help us set aside the things that aren't important so that we can focus on the things that are. It's in your name we pray, amen.